This Mother's Day, celebrate the extraordinary women in your life with a heartfelt gift from Blue Nile. Whether it's for your mom, a mother figure, or yourself as a mom, find that perfect piece to express your love and appreciation. Explore Blue Nile's exquisite pearls and mesmerizing gemstones that she's sure to love. Enjoy fast shipping options like guaranteed free shipping and returns. Make this Mother's Day unforgettable with a piece from Blue Nile. Right now, get up to 50% off at BlueNile.com. That's BlueNile.com. It's the Ancients on History Hit. I'm Tristan Hughes, your host, and in today's podcast, where we're going back to the Americas, we're going to North America, we're going to the prehistoric USA. We are talking all about one of the most famous, well-known prehistoric sites in North America. It's called the Great Serpent Mountain. It's this monumental effigy shaped like a snake in the region, in the state of Ohio. Now, recently, it is very fair to say that the Great Serpent Mound has come under some scrutiny. There have been some controversial theories and opinions put forwards as to what the Serpent Mound was, when it dates to, how it was used by the prehistoric peoples that created it, and so on and so forth. You might know what I'm hinting at there, but I'm not going to say any more about it. We wanted to address this. We wanted to talk all about the prehistoric monument that is the Great Serpent Mound. We wanted to interview an archaeologist, a leading expert on this site, to find out what the latest research, what the latest information is about the Great Serpent Mound, what it is, how it was used, the great debate around its state. When was Serpent Mound constructed? Well, to explain all, I was delighted to interview a few weeks back Dr. Brad Lepper. Brad, he is the curator of archaeology and the manager of archaeology and natural history at the Ohio History Connection. He is an absolute fountain of knowledge when it comes to all things prehistoric Ohio. Ohio is rich in wonderful, in amazing prehistoric monuments. I've never been, but I must visit in the future because I've had so many things. I've seen so many incredible images online, not least the Great Serpent Mount. We kick off our chat talking all about the Great Serpent Mount, but we also talk about some other prehistoric sites in Ohio too as part of the chat, such as the enigmatic sister effigy mound that is the Alligator Mound. Yes, you heard me right. There's a Serpent Mound and there's an Alligator Mound too. Pretty cool, right? So without further ado, to talk all about the Great Serpent Mound, but also other sites as well, such as the Alligator Mound, is Brad. Brad, it is wonderful to have you on the podcast today. Well, thank you. It's good to be here. You're very welcome. And I'm so delighted to be talking more about this incredible ancient prehistory of America, of the USA, particularly focusing on the Great Serpent Mound today. When I see pictures of it online, I've never seen it in person, but the pictures, when you type it in Google Images, it's incredible. And is it perhaps the most recognizable icon of ancient America? I think it is, but then again, I'm biased, certainly as an Ohio archaeologist. But yeah, it's on the covers of books. It's a national historic landmark. It does seem to be sort of the iconic idea of an American Indian mound. 
Brilliant. Well, you mentioned that you're an Ohio archaeologist there. So Brad, just set the scene because Ohio, this state in the USA, of all states in the USA, Ohio seems to be incredibly rich in prehistory. It is. It's partly probably due to its location between the Great Lakes and the Ohio River Valley. But yes, it's been 2,000 years ago, it was the ceremonial heart of much of North America. And so just describe it to us so we can really get an idea of it as we kick off this episode today. What exactly is the Great Serpent Mound? Well, it it is an effigy mound, a mound built in the shape of an animal or, or a human. There are some of those too. It's incredibly huge. There's some nonsense out there that says you can only see it if you're up in the air, like in a flying saucer or something. But that's not true at all. You can experience it by walking around it. And its scale is enormous. It's like 1,400 feet long if you stretch it out from its tail to the the end of the effigy. The mound is about three feet high. And it occupies the top of this bedrock bluff that juts out into the Ohio Brush Creek Valley. So it's on like a peninsula. And it basically inhabits that peninsula. And at one end, its coils are uncoiling. And its sinuous curves go down this bluff and its head and the other features associated with the mound are at the edge of the bluff. Right. So this serpent that's depicted, as you say, it's not a a straight line almost of a snake's body. It weaves and weaves and weaves in its decoration, in its design, doesn't it? Yes. It's an incredibly sort of elegant and naturalistic mound. And the curves may even have astronomical alignments associated with them. So the design is not just artistic, it's also ceremonial to the extent that it sort of brings down the cosmic rhythms into the the ceremonial architecture. And forgive me, when you were talking about the landscape surrounding the mound, you mentioned this plateau. So does the, the ground, does it get lower either side of the mound? How can we really picture the surrounding landscape? Yeah, there's it's a river valley or creek valley. And this it's actually part of a 350 million year old meteor crater. And the rocks have been disrupted in that. So this is a jutting bluff. And if you're down in the valley looking at the bluff, the end of the bluff almost looks like a serpent's head. And I don't think that's a coincidence. I think the indigenous people saw that and interpreted it as a serpent in the earth. So this serpent spirit was already imminent. And I think the creation of this effigy mound on top of the bluff was a way to acknowledge and honour that spirit. And if we go into more recent history, before we delve into the dating of the mound, the prickly thing around the dating and so much more, in more recent history, I mean, how much archaeological work has been done at the Serpent's Mound? Can we go back several centuries? Yeah, there's actually the most of the archaeological work that was done was done in the uh, 1880s by Frederick Putnam from Harvard University, the Peabody Museum at Harvard University. He is actually responsible for preserving the mound. He visited it, was amazed by it, comes back a few years later, and there apparently had been a tornado that had cleared some of the trees on it, and the farmer had begun to plow it. And Putnam was devastated by that idea that this amazing earthwork might be obliterated just by somebody, you know, wanting a few more acres of corn. And so with some help from Alice Fletcher, who was an ethnographer studying the the Plains peoples, she was also at the Peabody. They worked together. They raised money with local people in Boston and raised the money to buy it. And then when they bought it, Putnam did extensive excavations. It's not just the Serpent Mound on that plateau. There are three other 
mounds. There's a large conical burial mound that based on what Putnam found there, we would now call it an Adena culture. They were the first mound builders in Ohio living here 300, 200 AD, even into the maybe 100 BC. There's one of those mounds and then there's another smaller mound that also would be in that same period. But then there's another more irregularly shaped mound, a little bit smaller, that dates to the Fort Ancient culture, which is about 1000 AD, maybe a little later, maybe like around 1100. And Putnam excavated in the field adjacent to all this, a large Fort Ancient village that overlay a much smaller Adena occupation. Maybe a village, may have been a mortuary camp associated with the burial mounds, but it was a much more limited occupation with fewer artifacts. So there are two major occupations on that plateau, this Adena culture, an early woodland culture, the first farmers in Ohio, the first mound builders in Ohio, of course, there were earlier mound builders in the Southeast. And then not necessarily no occupation, but a much more diffuse occupation by later cultures, and then a reoccupation by the Fort Ancient culture at around 1100 AD. The base layer has therefore been laid down. When, therefore, which of these cultures, when do we think the serpent mound was constructed and is added to this incredible prehistoric landscape? Well, Frederick Putnam attributed the serpent to the earlier culture because I think he had a bias against the later culture. He recognized that the later culture, the Fort Ancient culture, the Fort Ancient culture extends up to about 1600 or even later, and they're basically the ancestors of the American Indian tribes that were living in the Ohio Valley at the time of European contact. And he didn't have a great opinion of American Indians, apparently. I mean, he, he thought everything about that later occupation was sort of plebeian, not very sophisticated, and they certainly wouldn't have been the ones to build the elaborate mounds. It must have been this earlier culture that seemed to be more sophisticated, that were the mound-building cultures of the Adena, of course, that he didn't have that name for them, but that had built these other conical burial mounds and other mounds that were in Ohio. So he thought it was belonged to the Adena. In the early 1990s, I was with a team that said, let's try to answer this question of the age of it. We put some soil cores to try to find one of Putnam's trenches that he dug through the mound because we wanted to do as little damage to the effigy as possible. Reopened Putnam's trench, found a clear profile. Putnam had described an ash layer at the bottom. And of course, we thought if we could get radiocarbon samples from a burned layer at the bottom, it would definitively date when the mound was built. Unfortunately, there was no ash layer in the area where we opened it. So we took flotation samples from two of the most intact portions of the earthwork, floated them, got charcoal from both of them, and both of those dates came back, identical dates, really radiocarbon dates, of about AD 1100. And so we thought this shows that Serpent was built by the Fort Ancient culture, which is after all contemporary with the effigy mound culture in Wisconsin that built thousands of effigy mounds and overlapped to a certain extent a date we'd previously gotten for the only other real effigy mound in Ohio, the so-called alligator mound. So we thought this fit nicely into a context. But there were other archaeologists who were still convinced, no, 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 it's got to be Adena. And they applied much later to, um, in the 2000s to do research to get, a they thought, a better date. They did soil cores across the mound and then dated what they thought was the base of the mound and 
some of the stuff up higher in the mound. And basically, they were dating soil humates because they said they found little bits of charcoal, but they were dated with bulk sediment samples, which is not the best way to date anything. And they got a number of dates. None of them were Fort Ancient. All of them were in with between about 300 and 600 BC. So they thought this proves the mound was built by the Adena culture. That didn't make sense to me. I mean, I was ready to accept it. It's certainly possible that the mound could have been built by the Adena, but the unreliability of the radiocarbon dates troubled me. And I mean, whoever built Serpent Mound, serpents were hugely important in their religion. They were central. And there is virtually no, with one possible exception, serpent iconography in Adena art. Fort Ancient art, Fort Ancient and contemporary Mississippian art, serpents are abundant in the art, represented on the pottery, on copper pendants, all kinds of things. Serpents are clearly important to them. So for the reasons that we thought our radiocarbon dates that, that it said it's Fort Ancient were more reliable, and that serpent mound fits into a clear cultural context of everybody who was building effigy mounds and, and being obsessed with serpents lived much later. So for all of those reasons, in spite of the, these new radiocarbon dates, I think that Serpent Mount is best understood as a Mississippian, Ford Ancient culture, religious icon. Do you think, therefore, Brad, that excava- I know excavation is destruction, so of course, treading lightly around it, but do you think there would be any future excavations at Serpent Mounds, you know, perhaps to try and find a potential ash layer or something like that to maybe try and put this date debate to bed in the future? I think that's going to be what it will take to, as you say, you know, put an end to the debate. But the Ohio History Connection now works closely with the indigenous tribes that were in this area. So all we're revising all of our research and interpretation proposals to take into account input from American Indian tribes. So any kind of research projects will be reviewed by the indigenous tribes that have the closest historic ties to this area, particularly the Shawnee in southern Ohio, but also the Miami who are in south Western Ohio as well. And both of those cultures seem to have strong ties to the Ford ancient culture. So any research initiative is going to have to be, if not initiated by the tribal nations, certainly they will have to approve of it and think it's a good idea. Otherwise, you know, no, there won't be any intrusive investigations without that tribal authorization. You mentioned effigy mounds in nearby Wisconsin. I believe that's nearby. Forgive my geography of the USA isn't the greatest. But with these effigy mounds, sorry, forgive my ignorance once again, but what do these sorts of effigy mounds look like in comparison to, let's say, the Great Serpent Mound? Wisconsin actually is quite a ways away. I can't think of miles, but it's it's up on the, almost on the Canadian border, on the, up in the upper Great Lakes. And there is a big sort of gap in effigy mounds. There's all these thousands of mounds in southern Wisconsin and neighboring parts of Iowa and other states, even into northern Illinois. But then there's a big gap, and then Ohio has these two effigy mounds. And for that reason, people have said, well, you know, there wouldn't have been much contact. And I think that's absurd. Of course, there was contact. Everybody knew what everybody was doing in in eastern woodlands. So there is a gap, but I think it does suggest that there was influence, that people might have been inspired by seeing effigy mounds in Wisconsin. Those mounds do look quite a bit different. They have serpent mounds that are similar, but they they seem to be more simply rendered. There isn't the scale and the elegance of the design. They have mounds that look very much like our alligator mound, and they're considered to be underwater panthers and, and beneath world spirits. 
And interestingly, in that American Indian cosmos that has the sky world above and the beneath world below, and when we live in the middle world, the two ruling spirits of the beneath world in, in many American Indian traditions are the great horned serpent and the underwater panther. And Ohio has two effigy mounds, and they appear to be the great horned serpent and the underwater panther. So if it does therefore date to this fort ancient time, the importance of the serpent to those people, it would almost make sense as to why of all creatures to draw, well, for the effigy, it would be the serpent rather than a different type of animal. Yeah, absolutely. And the folks that are have these later radiocarbon dates, um, Bill Romain and his co-authors, actually argued, we've replied back and forth in the journals, and they've said, well, it doesn't matter that serpents were popular, you know, in the Fort Edu culture. They said, like in the, in the Adena, that there may have been all kinds of reasons why the Adena would not have portrayed images of something so sacred in their art. And one of the analogies they give is that there aren't contemporary images of Muhammad and Jesus, but that does not mean they weren't important. And my only reply to that is, well, if indeed the culture that built Serpent Mound had a prescription of making graven images of serpents, they certainly violated it in building the largest effigy of a serpent ever built in the world. So it makes no sense to me that they would have that argument that, oh no, they couldn't make imagery of serpents. But what about Serpent Mound? I mean, of course they could make serpents. How interesting. And in regards to effigies, I'm guessing we're talking about these depictions, they're not of people, they're normally always representations of animals. In Wisconsin, there are a few representations of people. There's actually a mound that's partially preserved, I think his legs are cut off, called Mound Man, a park in Wisconsin. But yes, predominantly there are animals. In Wisconsin, there are lots of bears. There are lots of above-world imagery with birds and below-world imagery with uh, the serpents and underwater panthers. And then there's sort of the middle area, like bears that can, you know, sleep in the ground in the winter, you know, but come out and, and, and sort of inhabit really the middle part and are part of all these worlds. Okay, so I'm going on a tangent right now because you did, you've said that word a number of times now, underwater panthers. Yes, basically is a sort of translation, I guess, of the Ojibwe word, I think it's Mishipeshu, and it's vaguely underwater panther. And that's the word that's come down in translations and it's used now in English. And I wonder, especially with regard to alligator mound, and I just wonder if some European asked one of the American Indians what that mound represented. Because when you talk about the name alligator mound, the earliest documentation of it is in Ephraim Squire and Edwin Davis's 1848 Ancient Monuments of the Mississippi Valley. And they say, yeah, it's called Alligator Mound. It doesn't really look like an alligator because it's got a round head and a curling tail, but that's what everybody calls it and they're convinced that that's what it is, so okay. And they sort of keep calling it alligator, but I think they put it in quotes even. But if those early Europeans had asked an American Indian and they had said something like Mishipeshu and the Europeans, you know, with an indifferent, you know, inadequate understanding of the language going, underwater panther? Panthers don't live in the water. What do you mean? And if they'd clarified it, and underwater panthers were, they were religious icons, but they were also very dangerous. And Europeans sort of got the idea that that meant they were evil because they lived in the underworld, the hell, that, so they may have been demonic. And that association is wrong. They were dangerous, but in the same way that Anything powerful, like an electrical outlet is dangerous if you put your fingers in it. 
So yes, they had to be dealt with very carefully, but they were sources of spiritual power. So if that person said, well, these are beings with long tails, they live in the water, sometimes they eat people, the European would go, oh, you mean an alligator? Native American would say, yeah, whatever. You know? <laughs> so, and I don't have any evidence that any kind of conversation like that ever occurred. But if it did, it's a just-so story to explain why people in this area would have been so convinced it was an alligator, even though it didn't look anything really like an alligator, because they thought they had been told by the indigenous people who should know what it was. That's just an interesting, as I said, just-so story to account for the tenaciousness of that really inappropriate name. We try to bring you cold, hard facts on Gone Medieval, but January is all about mysteries. Impossible riddles from medieval history that defy efforts to solve them. How did the presence of a mysterious saviour from the East turn into devastation? What secrets does a book written in an unknown code hide? Did kings and princes really die when history has assumed they did? I'm Matt Lewis, and in January, we'll see how close we can get to answering the unanswerable and ask how these mysteries might be solved in the future. If you're looking for plump lips that last, you need to know about Juvederm Lip Fillers. With Juvederm Volbella XC and Juvederm Ultra XC, your lip look, whether it's subtle or bold, can last up to one full year with optimal treatment and no additional maintenance. Find a licensed specialist and see if it's right for you at Juvederm.com today. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Add fullness to lips in adults over 21 with Juvederm Volbella XC or Juvederm Ultra XC. Do not use if you have severe allergies or a history of severe allergic reactions, or if you're allergic to lidocaine or the proteins used in Juvederm. Tell your doctor if you have a history of scarring or taking medicines that decrease the body's immune response or that can prolong bleeding. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. As with all fillers, there's a rare risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. For full, important safety information, visit Juvederm.com. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Join us this month on Gone Medieval from History Hit. I'm Matt Lewis. And I'm Eleanor Yanaga. This April, dive into our special miniseries. With the help of leading experts, we're tracing the foundations of England by exploring the country's most powerful Anglo-Saxon kingdoms. We'll be looking at Northumbria, Mercia and Wessex, as well as the rulers and their councils who helped shape a nation. Make sure to get every episode by listening and following Gone Medieval from History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. Just explain to us a bit more what this alligator mount looks like and whereabouts this animal effigy is compared to the Great Serpent's Mount. 
Sure, there are similarities. It's on a bluff that sticks out into Raccoon Creek Valley. And the Wisconsin effigies also all seem to be associated with water. So it's making a connection with streams and rivers and lakes are entrances to the underworld. The underworld is a watery underworld. So the effigy mounds often seem to be associated with water, overlook it, or even are quite close to it. So they're both like that. They're both on bluffs overlooking water. The alligator is much smaller. Instead of being 1,400 feet long, it's maybe 200, 100 feet long. The exact length escapes me, but it's much smaller in scale. And it's splayed out. You can see all four of its legs splayed out. And it has a long tail that has a curve to it. And it has basically a little round head, nothing at all like an alligator's head. Right. And so like with the Great Serpent Mound, you said excavations go back to the 19th century with, with that particular mound. How much excavation work has occurred at the Alligator Mound to try and find out more about its construction and its state, for instance? Sure. There were only really early, poorly documented excavations that you know, people had dug a trench into it and found stone mounds at the base. And... Before we dated Serpent Mound, I work at the Newark Earthworks mostly, and the curious thing was wanting to understand the age of the alligator, since it was so closely associated with Newark. People were sort of, I think, making the same kinds of mistakes, that just because they're near each other, maybe they're the same age. And I think that's the same mistake people were making with a serpent, that, oh, there's an Adena burial mound right near it, so they must go together. These landscapes are a term lots of people use as palimpsests parchments that have been written over multiple times by successive generations. And alligator may be positioned where it is because of the gigantic Hopewell period Newark earthworks, but maybe a sort of a response to it. But I don't think they're directly related in terms of time because the Hopewell and the Adena cultures aren't known to have made any other effigy mounds. So we wanted to determine, let's try to figure out what the age is. And what had happened was it was owned by the local Licking County Historical Society. It was being donated, I guess, to them at this time. And a road had been built all the way around it so this developer could build houses on it. So it's a very different visitor experience today than is Serpent Mound. Serpent Mound is, I think, very close to its original condition. It's, it's in a very rural setting, lots of trees, lots of forests around. You go to Alligator Mound and it's on an artificial pedestal surrounded by upscale suburban housing. But in that process, someone called me and I went over to look and they had actually, in scraping away that pedestal that it's on, they'd done further damage to one of the paws and there was charcoal sort of washing down the slope. So I got permission from the Licking County Historical Society that owns it to do an investigation. And we wanted to make sure that we didn't get very near the surface. So we went in basically to the left armpit and excavated the trench. And even though it was right next to the leg where this charcoal was being revealed, we didn't find any charcoal. So we dug like another meter into it and still weren't finding and dug another meter into it. And then we hit this small stone mound as it had been reported earlier. And right by it, we found a big couple pieces of charcoal embedded in the floor right next to the stone mound. So we took those samples out and dated those and got dates that were right around that 1100 AD period, the, the Ford ancient culture. And that had been done before we dated the serpent. But that was just one of the other lines of evidence why I was feeling like if serpent mound was built by the Adena, then it was built like way at one end of the timeline and no one ever thought of building an effigy mound ever again for a thousand years. And then suddenly it caught on. And, and why would the biggest, you know, most elegant effigy mound 
ever built be sort of this one-off and nobody ever followed up on it for a thousand years. Now, you mentioned there the newer Kerthworks and the Hopewellian culture. We've already established the Adena culture around the turn BC to AD and the Fort Ancient more than a thousand years later. When about is the Hopewellian culture also in regards to those two, just so we can get our minds set on those dates? Yeah, that's a good idea because the, the Hopewell basically emerged from the Adena culture. And this, what the late Nomi Grieber described as an explosion of art, ritual, and architecture happens right around AD 1 and lasts up to about AD 400. And then the AD 400 to 900 or 1,000 gap is filled by what's called the late woodland culture. So Hopewell, though, created these giant hilltop enclosures like the Fort Ancient Earthworks and geometric earthworks like at Newark, circles, squares, octagons. Okay, well, let's then full focus on the Serpent Mound and the Alligator Mound, because as you've hinted, if they are dating to the similar time period to the Fort Ancient culture, from the excavations, from the work that you and other colleagues have done at these places, how do we think these indigenous Americans went about building these mounds? Well, that's one of the remarkable things is they built it with technology that was as simple as you can imagine, pointed sticks, clamshell hose, and baskets. But in spite of that simple technology, the artistry and the science and it, that's incorporated in these mounds, particularly the Hopewell Earthworks with these lunar astronomical alignments, but also perhaps with Serpent Mound with the alignments to its curves, it's very sophisticated knowledge that went into their construction, not only that geometry and astronomy, but also the principles of soil science to know which soils to use that would create monuments that could endure for a couple thousand years or even more. Stone was used to stabilize it if it was came near an embankment. But basically the techniques were the same. You pick these particular soils based on their properties. Clay, you know, helps them hold together more. But also certainly with the Hopewell color, soil color was a big factor. And then you dig it up with your pointed stick and fill up your baskets and carry them one after another but then you're piling them up where some religious leader who is the architect, the artist who designed it, would be directing all the families that were you know, helping where to put the earth to fulfill the incredible design that was in their head and that they'd laid out on the ground. Right. right. And you mentioned that religious leader there. And that's kind of something else which seems to link alligator and serpent mounds. Forgive me if I'm mistaken, but the presence of an altar at both of them. That's correct. And these are often found with effigy mounds in Wisconsin as well. With the alligator, this was something I didn't mention in the description from the, I think it's the right-hand side, there's a little peninsula of earth that connects it with a big round flat stone altar that the archaeologist that investigated it in the 1800s described it as the stones were much burned. And then serpent mound, the serpent head is clasping in its jaws, apparently, an oval. And then there's another mound on the other side of it. And within that oval, in the very center of that oval, there was this stone altar. Now, that's the term used by Putnam and used by Ephraim Squire and Edwin Davis in the 1800s. And we quit using it for a long time because it seemed to imply more than we knew about it. But I think that's a really good name. A really, you know, the analogy is very strong. I think that that's what these were. That stone altar also had much evidence of burning on it. And I think probably offerings were placed on these altars and burned. There's no evidence that humans were cremated on those. But 
Offerings of some kind, I think, were offered there, or ceremonial fires were built there as part of the religious ceremonies that were taking place at these sites. I appreciate we're probably going deep into theory now, but I mean, having looked at stone circles in Orkney and on the island of Britain and elsewhere, do you think it's significant that the religious structure, the altar, was placed within a very visible ring almost? I think so, especially when other colleagues and I that I've worked with subsequently think that oval is something very particular, that in addition to everyone knows about the serpent and the oval, and Putnam and others called it a serpent with an egg in its mouth because it evoked Eastern Asian religions very specifically, and I think that connection is wrong. When you look at it in connection with similar imagery that's on the walls of Picture Cave in Missouri, pictographs made by the ancestors of the Degiasuan peoples, probably. There's very similar symbols, a serpent with a, a big oval and, and a, a woman with splayed legs. And that's what I think is on the other side of the, the oval. There's the serpent head, the oval, and then a wishbone-shaped earthwork. The first archaeologist to really document and talked about it thought it was a frog. And he kind of made it ridiculous by saying, the serpent was striking at the frog and the frog is leaping away and the egg is squirting out of her. But the egg is bigger than the frog. So, and, and I know when I read that as a grad student, I thought that was silly and, and assumed that it was incorrect and that he was seeing things. But other archaeologists map that horseshoe-shaped mound as well. So we think that's first woman, and the oval between her legs is apparently, we think, a symbolically enlarged vulva. And first woman, by mating with the great serpent, obtained his power of creation, and she used that to create all life on earth. And her vulva is where the sun sets in the evening, and it's a portal to the underworld. So offerings burned within that oval could be sort of directly funneling into the underworld as offerings of supplication or offerings of thanksgiving given to the great serpent for whatever sorts of powers they wanted, powers of healing, perhaps foretelling the future. So therefore, the construction of the serpent's mound as it looks could potentially be very much linked to this creation story. Yes, my colleagues and I think it is this key pivotal moment in that Degiasun creation story. And we're not saying it was built by the Degiasun, even though the Degiasun peoples do say they originated in the Ohio Valley. It's possible, but I mean, it may just be that their traditions are the most well-preserved. But for example, the Shawnee are one of the only Algonquian tribes that have a female creator. All the others have male creators. That may be an echo of first woman. Also, the Shawnee are one of the only tribes, maybe Algonquian tribes, that have a snake clan. There are snake clans in some of the Iroquoian tribes, like the Wyandotte. But so it suggests that perhaps these traditions actually go back. And it could be ancestors of Shawnee, it could be ancestors of Wyandotte that shared this story. But the fullest account of this creation story has come down to us, perhaps, in the Degiasuan traditions. So uh, I'm not claiming I know which you know, the, which ancestors of which modern tribes built it, but our clearest window onto the traditions that we think it represents come from the Degiasuan peoples. That is so, so interesting. I mean, one more thing I'd love to ask, therefore, and I'd love to hear what you think about it, is what is the potential astronomical link or purpose of the Great Serpent Mound? That's an interesting question. I mean, we can certainly talk about the astronomical alignments and whether they're real intentional alignments or whether they're not. There's an alignment associated with the head, 
that does seem to work. I mean, I've been there and watched it. And it's the, the specific alignment is from the neck, where the jaws sort of intersect the body. It's, it, makes, it makes a point. And where the altar used to be, the altar is no longer there. It was dug up by people looking for treasure in the 1800s and supposedly thrown down. So it, it's not there anymore. But that center point in the oval where the altar was, that line between that point on the neck and that point to where the sun sets on the summer solstice. And then there are these three convolutions in the serpent's body. And it's been claimed, and there is a general alignment that one of them points to the summer solstice sunrise, one of them points to the equinox sunrise, and one points to the winter solstice sunrise. The problem with those, and I don't have any doubts that they could be aligned to that, but sort of the fly in the ointment is that another author said, no, 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 it's lined up to the moon. The northernmost convolution is pointing to the northernmost rise of the moon. The middle convolution is pointing to the midpoint in the lunar cycle. And the other convolution is pointing to the southernmost rise of the moon. Well, those alignments are different. They're not the same. So what that indicates is that because the sight line is so short and there's no obvious place to stand to say, here's where you stand to watch the alignment, you can fudge those alignments of the curves. So I'm inclined to think the curves actually are aligned to the sun because solar alignments were really important to the Ford ancient culture. We have a sun watch village in Dayton that's a, a excavated in Dayton, Ohio, a southwestern Ohio. And uh, there was a Ford ancient village that was excavated by the Dayton Natural History Museum. And as they excavated it, when they would excavate a post mold, the post stain where a post had been set for a house, they put a post back in it and sort of rebuilt the houses and rebuilt the palisade wall around it. And it's almost like a colonial Williamsburg experience, but for ancient Ohio. At the very center of the village was this giant cedar post that acted like a sundial that turned the whole village into a sundial. And on important dates, that shadow cast by that pole would go right in like to the chief's house, the, the doorway of the chief's house, the largest ceremonial house. So the sun is really important. I mean, in Europe and Asia too, for agricultural communities in particular, the solstice, the equinox are key dates for farmers. And the Ford Ancient were farmers. The Adena, not so much. So Adena and Hopewell also have solstice and, and equinox alignments in their earthworks. But at least we're at Newark, which has been the focus of my work. The moon is so much more important. And the alignments that, that include all the, the whole 18.6 year lunar cycle, those are built into the many of the Hopewell earthworks in Newark especially. But so I fully believe that those alignments probably are intentional, incorporating the sun into the structure of the serpent. But it's not like I'm confident in the one alignment. I'm not confident in the other alignments. They're probably to the sun, but it's not definitive. Right. One last thing on that. Is there any potential link to the Milky Way with this effigy mound? Well, if my colleagues are correct that it is the Great Serpent and that it's a, an indication of the moment when Great Serpent had sexual congress with the first woman and gave her those powers. In the Giyasuan traditions, the Great Serpent is the rainbow in the daytime sky and the Milky Way in the evening sky. That, that is manifestations of the Great Serpent. So there is that connection. There we go. There we go. Well, Brad, this has been absolutely incredible. I mean, last, before we completely wrap up, 
We've talked about so much about the Serpent Mound and the Alligator Mound and other effigy mounds, the Newark Earthworks, but is there anything else you'd like to shine a light on to talk about before we completely wrap up about these incredible monuments of prehistoric Ohio? Well, just briefly, I'd like to mention that we currently have submitted to UNESCO a World Heritage nomination, which personally I think is long overdue. It's the Hopewell Ceremonial Earthworks, and it encompasses the Newark Earthworks with all its incredible geometry and astronomy the Fort Ancient Earthworks, which in spite of its name is not a Fort Ancient Earthwork. It's a hilltop enclosure that was built by the Hopewell. A thousand years later, the Fort Ancient culture built a village there. Archaeologists in the 1800s excavated the village thinking, oh, this is a new culture. It's not Hopewell. We'll name it after the site. So the Fort Ancient culture is named after the Fort Ancient Earthworks. But the Fort Ancient Earthworks are Hopewell. So the Newark Earthworks, including the Great Circle and the Octagon, the Fort Ancient Earthworks, and then there are five sites in Chillicothe, which is really sort of the beating heart of the Hopewell civilization. Those are the five sites that currently make up Hopewell Culture National Historical Park. And it includes Mound City and the Sipe Earthworks and the Hopewell Mound Group, where the Hopewell Culture gets its name. Another circle and octagon, like the circle and octagon in Newark, which also has the same alignments to the moon. So this is a long overdue, I think, honoring of the indigenous Ohio Valley cultures that created these incredible monuments. And Serpent Mound is not included because it's either earlier, if the folks that, that prefer it to be Adena, or later, for those of us that think the evidence points categorically to Fort Ancient culture, it's not part of that culture. It's not part of that Hopewell culture. But Serpent Mound is on the United States tentative list to hopefully be considered for inscription on the World Heritage List on its own merits at some point in the future. Good. Well, hopefully that will come to fruition in the very near future indeed. Brad, this has been absolutely fantastic. And it just goes to me to say thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast today. Thank you for inviting me. It's been a pleasure. Well, there you go. There was Dr. Brad Lepper explaining what we know so far and the theories, the debates that still abound about the Great Serpent Mound. I hope you enjoyed the episode. We will be returning to the ancient Americas, to ancient North America, the USA, but also South America, Peru, in the near future. We've got a couple more episodes lined up of that, so stay tuned. I love it when we go to the Americas because there's such an incredible amount of prehistoric archaeology surviving, and it's a privilege to be able to bring that archaeology, those sites to the fore in this podcast today. Now, last thing from me, you know what I'm going to say, but if you'd be kind enough to leave us a lovely rating on Apple Podcasts, on Spotify, wherever you get your podcasts from, well, we'd greatly appreciate it because it does help us to grow the podcast, which is paramount in our overarching mission, which is to share these incredible stories from antiquity, from prehistory, with as many people as possible, with you, and also to share the expertise, the incredible expertise of the guests that we get on, these fascinating people who have dedicated so much of their time to their particular fields of research, it helps give them the spotlight that they so very much deserve. But that's enough from me, and I'll see you in the next episode. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. 
Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Thank you for listening to this episode of The Ancients. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget, you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month when you use code ANCIENTS at checkout.